Turn, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 19. We are um, only going to get about halfway through this today because um, there are a couple of points I want to spend a little bit of time on. And you're going to see as we, as we read through this chapter that there are a couple of laws in particular um, that I believe you need to know the meaning of and be equipped to carefully explain because they'll likely be used against you in one way or another by the world. So let's read this, Leviticus chapter 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it's eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people." When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord of, of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not uh, stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, you shall, uh, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your uh, field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for the guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And on the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. 
I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with its blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Let's stop and pray again. Father, I pray that you would conform us to the image of Christ through your word today. That your spirit would be working in our hearts as we listen, as we read, as we think, as we um, hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. That your spirit would be working to conform us to the holiness of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this might date me just a little bit, um, but have you ever been called a holy roller? I don't know that this is really, I don't know it's really a thing anymore. I don't know if people still call people holy rollers in sort of that derogatory way, um, but it's one of those insults that's, that's not really that insulting. Um, Yet we don't really want to be called that. Our response is something like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those Christians. Actually, we're not, um, because the term originated in the, in the Pentecostal roll-on-the-floor-in-the-spirit type of churches. In fact, the Wikipedia entry for holy rollers says something like this, describes holy rollers in this way. It says, the term describes dancing, shaking, or other boisterous movements by church attendees who perceive themselves as being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This does not describe anybody in this room. Holy rolling is sometimes used derisively by those outside these denominations as if to describe people literally rolling on the floor in an uncontrolled manner. Those within related Wesleyan holiness traditions have reclaimed the term as a badge of honor. In that light, the, the old gospel singer Andre Crouch, he sang this, They call us holy rollers, and what they say is true. But if they knew what we were rolling about, they'd be rolling too. So we are not really holy rollers in that sense, and we're not going to be. Um, but I will say this. It is okay to say amen once in a while. We can't leave this all up to Chris. Okay? <laughs> 
What about the holy part? Usually when that holy roller is used as an insult today, it's not really used with the rolling in mind, but as an insult to, the, to that person's, to our expression of what it means to be holy, holy living. Are, are we holy? Do Christians live as though they have been set apart and distinct among the world? Do, do you live like that? Do you live like that? I don't mean, are your Sundays or Sunday mornings distinct? I mean, are you working to be holy in every area of life? Do your coworkers, your neighbors, your extended family, do they know that you're different somehow? There was to be no mistaking that the ancient Israelites were different from all of the other nations. Can the same be said for Christians? Now, one of the things I hope that you're seeing as we are working our way through this study of the book of Leviticus, and we're doing so in light of the work of Christ in the New Testament, one thing I hope that you're getting, that you're, that you're understanding, is that the Lord is concerned with the inner man before He's concerned with our outward actions. Now, that does not mean that he is not concerned with our, with our outward actions. So, for example, the law states, uh, you shall not kill. This is a good, right, and just law, right? And yet the book of James, and actually Ben has been talking about this in, in Sunday school, the book of James explains the root concerns behind the law, you shall not kill. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That, that inner self-centeredness and, and covetousness are some of, the, some of the root causes of the outward sin of violence. It's not enough to be holy by, by not killing anyone, right? In the eyes of God, it goes much, much deeper than that. And the symptom, according to James there, one of the symptoms of this is actually prayerlessness, which really cultivate prayerlessness, really cultivates covetousness and envy. The same could be said for any number of external sins. They begin with the heart. Jesus himself said in, in uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 45, he said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And, and it's important for us to define, really, before we go any further, it's important for us to define what it means to be holy. In fact, the overarching command of this entire chapter is right there in verses 1 and 2. L listen again to Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. 
The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Then from verses 3 through 36, almost the entire chapter, are very specific commands for holy living for the people of Israel. And then the summary of all of the commands is found right there in the very last verse. Verse 37, you shall observe all my statutes, all my rules, and do them. I am the Lord. So let's define holiness. Because to be to be set apart, which is really a, a strict definition of holiness, to be set apart actually isn't sufficient, uh, a sufficient description of the, of the life and character of the people of God, right? See, they could, be, they could be set apart in any number of ways. They could be set apart from the people of Canaan by walking on all fours. But that's not what is in view here. No, they're to be holy as God is holy. So they are to look to Him and think and act like Him. But since we really cannot know the mind of God apart from His intervention, apart from His Word, He has given us His Word and His Spirit to guide us in holiness. And for the people of Israel, it started here with the law. So keep this in mind. Holiness is not simply the avoidance of evil. It is the practice of righteousness. Again, holiness is not simply the avoidance of evil. It's the practice of righteousness. You, you, might, be, um, you might be able to avoid evil by never driving a car or having electricity. You might be able to somehow avoid evil by mowing the lawn in a denim jumper. But that's not holiness. That's what people around us in, our society, in this county believe. Have you seen that? That's not holiness. Avoiding evil is part of what it means to be holy. You shall not kill, right? But true holiness is making your life the regular practice of righteousness. So holiness is not simply the avoidance of evil, but the practice of righteousness. So one thing this chapter makes clear is that holiness is not accomplished by withdrawing from the world, but rather by actively engaging in it. By living out our Lord's righteous character in every sphere of life. In fact, as we read through this chapter, even though it feels when you're reading through it like it's random, just a, a list of random laws, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, over and over and over again for 30-something verses... But as we read through this, we actually can see that all kinds of, of life situations are addressed one way or another. L let me just give you a list. These are, they are scattered throughout the chapter. But let me just give you a list of some of, the, some of the life situations that are addressed here. Family. Family relationships are here. Worship is here. Business practices are here. Proper treatment of the poor or disadvantaged 
is mentioned a few times in this chapter. The court of law is listed here. Ritual practices. And then, if that doesn't cover everything in life, there are several places where, where general social interactions are dealt with. So, for example, look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. That's to anybody. All these things, every aspect of life is dealt with. Now, <clears throat> I will tell you, one of the challenges of preaching this chapter is that, as I said, there seems to be no discernible pattern for how these things are laid out. I, I don't know why God gave the law this way. I don't know. I, I studied all week. I don't know why these are in the order that they're in. Um, so, for example, the, the proper treatment of poor or those who are disadvantaged in one way or another, it's addressed in verses 9 and 10, then in verses 13 and 14, and again in verses 33 and 34. And, and really the same is true for, for each of those areas of life, that list that I gave you. The people are to be holy in all of these areas. They're scattered throughout this chapter. And, and then one other thing that stood out to me as I was studying this, as I was putting notes together for all of this, is that each of the Ten Commandments, each of them are either, is either addressed explicitly or at least alluded to in this chapter. But again... Not in any kind of order, at least not in the order from Exodus that we think of. However, there is a very specific and very obvious pattern here. Did you see it when I read through this? What does it mean when God declares 16 times in this chapter, I am the Lord? Or, I am Yahweh, your God. Sixteen times in this chapter. Well, when God says this, when he proclaims his name, when he says, I am, it brings up a whole series of ideas, even just in Israel's recent history. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's kind of a summary of what he had said in, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 and 6, where he elaborates on that. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, the Lord said. Exodus chapter 29, verse 46 and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Each, each of these passages from Exodus is alluded to or, or even repeated in, ex, in uh, Leviticus here. 
And so God's repeated declaration throughout this chapter, I am the Lord, it makes clear that the Israelites' obedience was to be a long and reverential and loving response of worship to their to their covenant head, to the one who has redeemed them, the holy king who called them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and entered into this covenant with them, forming through them a a, a new covenant community that embodied his holy kingdom. I am the Lord your God, Yahweh, the Lord. That is his his covenant name, his promise-keeping name, his special name for the people of Israel to know him. And so all all of the commands in this chapter, they point to their obligations. In fact, we could say their covenant obligations to the God who has redeemed them and promised in Exodus 19 to set them apart as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And they had agreed, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do, they had said. And so God was requiring here loyalty covenant loyalty. And and really, he was requiring this in in four specific areas. We're just going to get through two this morning. But let me give you all four. We'll come back to the other two next week, Lord willing. He was requiring covenant loyalty in matters of holiness, love, distinctiveness, and the fourth one we could say is kindness and honesty. Holiness, love, distinctiveness, and kindness, honesty. Verses 1 to 8 really covers this this covenant loyalty in matters of holiness. Holiness. Now, when when taken together, these, these verses, these first eight verses, they function so as to explain what holiness looks like practically among God's people. Now, Holiness bleeds through the entire chapter. It's all through uh, all of the law, really all of the book. It's given so that they would be holy, but especially in these first eight verses. And we can be sure that the concepts of holiness applies even to us. The, The big idea, the concept of be holy as Christ is holy, as I am holy, God said, It applies to Christians because Peter cites this passage specifically when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Listen carefully to this. Peter writes this. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is where that's written, at least one of the places that's written. But did you notice that in Peter's writing there, Peter specifically connects the call to holiness with the inner man. He uses words like mind, be sober-minded. 
He uses hope. Set your hope. He uses the word passions, our emotions, our desires, what drives us. He's talking about the inner man. So for us as Christians, we must define holiness in New Testament terms, which means that while, while many of these outward um, uh, restrictions and regulations that we see in the book of Leviticus and all through the law, they don't really apply to us in the same way under the new covenant. Yet in many ways, the, the standards of holiness for Christians is actually much higher. Have you ever considered that? The standard for holiness for Christians is actually much higher. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And to that, to that we can only say, thank God for imputed righteousness. Yeah. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, as we work through this, I know that you have probably some specific questions about some of these specific laws. So let's look into some of them. The first thing that we see here as we consider this idea of holiness is that God's, God's people are, were called to keep the whole of his covenant law. All of it. L look at verses 3 and 4. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Now, our, the Lord here begins his specific instructions by referencing, uh, these are the, the fifth and then the fourth commandments, and then he summarizes really the first two commandments in verse 4. So here's what we know. Each of these commandments, what we read there in verses 3 and 4, each of those commandments are vital to the proper functioning of the assembly of the people of God. Each of those commandments are vital to the proper functioning of the assembly of the people of God. So consider the first one, which is uh, the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Shall revere all of you, every one of you, shall revere his father and mother. Do you remember, do you remember that it's the parents who have been commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, when the Lord says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. They're to be always on the tip of your tongue. You're always teaching your children these things. It is the parents who have been commanded to provide this kind of covenant instruction to their children. But even before that, even before the command to instruct comes in there, the Lord created the family back in Genesis, the first couple chapters of Genesis, the Lord created the family to be the most basic unit of society. So last week I made the statement, as goes the pulpit, 
so goes the culture or the society. That starts with the families sitting under the pulpit. As goes the family, so goes society. And listen, this is not limited to pre-18-year-olds. How many times do we hear, well, once you're 18, you can do whatever you want. That's not a thing. That's not a thing in here at all. I'm not looking at anybody specific. Just, just remember. Just remember. Just because the government says that you can now buy cigarettes and bullets doesn't mean you no longer have to revere your parents. It's so much more than just that. This is about a lifetime of reverential faithfulness. So consider this. In the midst of discussions about widows, in the midst of a discussion about widows, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, says this. He says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's in the mid. Before and after that, he's talking about widows. That's what he's talking about. Our world has no use for families in general. In fact, it, it's even decreasing. Our world has no use for the aged in particular. Christians are to be completely different from that. We are to be holy and we are to care for our mothers and fathers. And I understand this as well as anybody in this room. I understand that families can be difficult and that this will look different in every family. I get it. But maybe, maybe this also means the mothers and fathers of our new adoptive Christian family, the church. I think I'm actually going to go back through this on this point and and do a whole sermon. We, we could do a whole sermon based on just this one statement, and I think I'm going to at some point here this summer. There's so much more that could be said here. But let's keep moving through this one section. Because God also requires maintaining His Sabbaths. This is going to come up again a little bit later in chapter 23. But for now, I should point out that the Sabbath was a weekly sign of the covenant. Exodus chapter 31, verse 13 says this, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift of rest. It is a gift, in fact, there he says, of sanctification, of being made holy. And so the Christian Sabbath is one of the most important, regular, ordinary gifts from the Lord. And for uh, our good and His glory, He commands us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to just 
kind of stop here and, and hand it to you. <laughs> it is a really nice day after a week where we had to put on sweatshirts. It's Father's Day. You don't have to be here. Not according to the world. But you are. Because first and foremost, this is the Lord's Day. And you're here to worship now again, we will come back to the Sabbath later too. But from here, the Lord also prohibits idolatry, which was a sin that the people of Israel had already committed. And images and idols, they were, they were prohibited because, because they reversed the whole order of creation. Humans were created in the image of God. To then reverse that or distort that is just folly. It's foolishness. And so we saw last week, it's also the work of the demonic. So now I've got three more sermons to do. One on families, one on the Sabbath, and one on idolatry. But let's keep moving through this. Verses 5 to 8. In these verses, holiness is demonstrated when God's people celebrate Celebrate peace with him in the way that he requires. Let me just read this again. Verse, uh, so chapter 19, verse 5. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten in the same day you offer it or the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it's eaten at all on the third day, it's tainted and will not be accepted. And everyone who eats of it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Again, without spending too much time on all of this, the reason that the peace offering was singled out there among all of the other sacrificial offerings that we looked at at the beginning of the book was because the peace offering was the culmination of all of the others. All of the rituals and ceremonies were designed to bring peace with God. So to offer the peace offering properly was to claim to be at peace with God, to be keeping His commandments to be enjoying his, all of his blessings and, and benefits, which by definition meant that all of the offerings, all of the sacrifices had been fully and rightly kept as well. And so the Israelites were to keep the law and then the peace would be declared. Peace with God would be declared after they did all of that. But because Christ fulfilled the law for us, we can now declare it at the very beginning of our services. Some of you didn't hear it today. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. We can declare that at the very beginning because Christ already said, it is finished. Peace has been accomplished for all who believe in him. So, covenant loyalty to our God is seen in our holiness, but it's also seen in our love. Love. As I said, the, this chapter doesn't go through the Ten Commandments in a, in a straight line, um, but this section, verses 9 to 18, is clearly about the, the second table of the law 
which is summarized with the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we could break down this section like this. Verses 9 and 10 instructs us that God's people must ensure that the poor have a full share in the covenant life of the people of God. This is a very specific test of faithfulness. And the Bible has a lot to say about caring for the poor and needy. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul instructs about the, uh, the Lord's Supper, some are going without. They did not have full access to the blessings and benefits of the church because those with were keeping it from them. In this day of political polarization, we need to be really careful and really discerning as we strive to be faithful to God's commands to love, to love and care for the poor, or the, as he's kind of summarized, the disadvantaged. He mentions... um, verses 13 and 14, specifically the blind and the deaf. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that God's people must be honest in our dealings with our neighbors as well. Again, this is very straightforward, um, but we need to remember that these things, they, they actually must be true of us because they're true of God. We are to reflect His character. So so listen to some verses from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Look back here at verses um, 11 and 12. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord, your God, I am the Lord. God's people must be marked by these things. Of, Of all people, of all people, Christians must be the ones who are honest, who speak the truth and do so in love. Third, God's people must not take advantage of others. Again, this is verses 13 and 14. And this is, again, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Don't put a stumbling block in front of blind people. That's just, that's just straightforward, right? Christians should not try to get away with things, even things only God can see, which is kind of the point underneath this. Let me give a a very specific example, and I'll keep it short. It's not an example about anybody here. I think it's just generally true in churches at times. Um, Sometimes if you own a business, fellow church members can be terrible customers. Do you know why? Because they always want a deal, right? Well, I mean, I do. We always want a good deal. We want... We want a discount. But Christians are called to be generous. And so if anything, it should be the other way around. 
This could go both ways, by the way. We might be terrible businessmen dealing with Christians. We are not to take advantage of others. Rather, we are to be generous as God has been generous with us. Now, two more. Verses 15 and 16 address the fact that God's people preserve justice. And for Christians, this carries over. Look at verses 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not, uh, you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. As Christians, we are called to stand up and fight. We are to be champions of truth and real justice in the world. Again, there is... There's so much more to say. Each one of these could be its own sermon. But then finally, the summary of these is verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The Apostle John, again, he picks all of this up in his first epistle. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 19, he says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Here it is. That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Without love, especially for the household of God, without love, we have no right to call ourselves Christians. The Lord, Yahweh, he requires covenant loyalty in matters of holiness and in love, and also in our distinctiveness. That's where we're going to go next week. I'm going to stop here, and we're going to pick that up next week right there with our distinctiveness beginning in verse 19. Let me finish this morning by saying this. We are currently living in a world that is filled with strife and wickedness of all kinds. When the Lord calls us to be holy as He is holy, He's not saying simply, be nice. Be meek and mild. This is, a, this is a radical call for us to be radically different type of people. We ought to stand out in the crowd. 
Jesus said in John chapter 13, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May that be forever the mark of this church. Let's pray. Father, it is a joy to be a part of a church that genuinely loves one another, that cares for one another, that meets one another's needs. But Lord, we know that we have ways to go in this. You know our hearts. You know that, that sometimes we are obedient to your commands externally, but not internally. And so I pray, Lord, that you would continue to mold and shape us and conform us to the image of Christ, that we might love because Christ has first loved us, that we might love one another in the way that we ought, that the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ because we love one another, because we are holy, because we are obedient to your commands, because we are like Christ. Father, that we might be the aroma of Christ to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.